Uh, please keep your device open to Mark chapter 6 or if you're old school grab the Bible in front of you uh, page 1008 and 9 that's where we are um, we've been working our way through Mark if you've not been with us if you're new it's great that you're here tonight uh, we're going to continue to work our way through it uh, and you're greatly assisted by having the Bible open uh, we're even more assisted by having the living God open our hearts and minds so let's pray do just that our Lord and Father Uh, We sung just moments ago of how precious the blood of Jesus is. And we pray that tonight, as we come to your word, we would see afresh just how precious Jesus' life as well as his blood is. Uh, That we would delight in him, and in delighting in him, our lives would be changed. And so, Father, speak to us that we would see him clearly. Help us understand your word, and may it not be a dead word, but a living word in our hearts and minds. We pray that we would become more and more like Jesus through what you have to say to us tonight. In his name we pray. Amen. Mark 6 finishes, uh, and there is Jesus strolling across the sea in a gale. You know, we, we know something of gales, don't we? You know, kind of the, the wind, the wild conditions, and, uh, and so the disciples are terrified. And in verse 50, right at the end of that chapter, Jesus speaks to their terror. And see what he says? He says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And more literally, I've added a little bit in, you know, to take courage, you know, it, it's take heart, be of good cheer, it is I, literally at that point, it's I am, don't be afraid, I am. Now Jesus at that moment is saying more than, oh, it's me, I'm not a ghost, you know, you, have you forgotten who I am? No, no. I am is God's self-revelation. I am is God's personal name. Uh, In Exodus 3, Moses asked God um, who he should tell the Israelites sent him and and God's reply is, I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. As God's name is his way of of saying that um, as the real God, I define myself. You don't project your wishes upon me you don't get to make an idol in your image you don't tell me who I am what I do I am who I am and that's what any true God does defines themselves I am who I am any true God will always be self-defined I will be who I will be you cannot contain you cannot limit you cannot make me in the way you want me to be no 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 and Jesus walks along the water and he tells those terrified disciples take courage I am don't be afraid. Now, Mark 6 is all about reminding us um, what to expect when God enters our world. You know, what it would mean to really encounter and experience the living and true God. Uh, headlining this week's uh, news was the census and the decline in official religion. Uh, for the first time, the number of Australians who, sent, who self-identify as Christian dropped below 50%. No, not hugely, it's still 44%. It's, it's still the case, uh, if you're unaware, it's still the case, one in every ten Australians consider themselves Anglican. That's our brand, okay? So every tenth person you meet, every tenth friend, every tenth person you bump it, this is their default religious home. Isn't that nice? And we look forward to welcoming them all. Because um, sadly, the vast majority of our friends and neighbours haven't had a real encounter with God. And Mark 6 is showing what might happen if they really did meet the I am. 
And Jesus' self-revelation at that point of saying, I am, is also the climax of this little mini mission he sent the 12 on. So right at the start of chapter 6, verse 7, he authorised them, go, bring the kingdom, bring it powerfully in word and deed. And he commissioned them, even though they hadn't fully grasped who he was. So right at the end of the chapter, 6, verse 52, they've come back from mission, they've done mission for him, even though their hearts were hard. Now, they hadn't properly understood Jesus. Um, Beautiful little side note, isn't it? Jesus is um, able, capable of working through the willing, even imperfect people. And our vision as a church is to see more disciples of Jesus shining as lights in our city. Um, And again, Mark 6 is showing what would happen if we really grasped Christ as we went and did that mission. The difference it would make, take courage, I am, do not be afraid. It's the essential truth uh, to reshape our hearts and hold this section together. Five words, Jesus is the unwanted God. He's the unwanted God. Um, The question driving the first half of Mark, who is Jesus? And Mark is showing us Jesus in such a way that you would understand him and it would reshape your life, that you would love to live for him. And in Mark 6, um, as misunderstanding and opposition is increasing, Jesus makes explicit what he's been implying for some time. He, he makes it clear, if you haven't picked it up, this is the chapter where you will pick up who he is. Jesus is the unwanted God. And there are two aspects of that truth. The first is this, Jesus is God himself. God has come to us. So 6 verse 1 opens, there is Jesus, he's continuing the mission, Uh, he's been in Gentile territory, we saw it last week, he's back home. Um, Mission has been his whole thing the whole way. If you're with us from the start, Mark chapter 1 opened with Jesus bringing God's kingdom to you and me powerfully in the wilderness of our reality. And that work is continuing on, he keeps it going. 6 verse 2, he's there in his home synagogue. And there are hearers who are amazed at his teaching and there are hearers who are amazed at his power and Jesus himself is amazed. 6 verse 6, what amazes Jesus, what he marvels at is their lack of faith, their unwillingness to trust him with all he's shown them. They still don't get it. Um, In 6 verse 5, faithlessness, their faithlessness prevents him doing further miracles. Now don't don't misunderstand this, this is not weak Jesus. Um, it's not that Jesus needs uh, people to believe in him, uh, you know, to, to fuel his power. He's not like, you know, Peter Pan and Tinkerbell where, you know, everybody at home clap louder and suddenly Tinkerbell will come back to life. Anyone know Tinkerbell? We heard of Tinkerbell. Some people over here. Okay. Apparently there's a movie all about her. Anyway. Um, no, no, he, he's not weak. Jesus has cleansed the demonic who had no faith. When it says Christ couldn't do miracles, it's because restoration is an experience of the kingdom. It is a blessing for those with faith. That is, his mighty works are not party tricks to produce belief. Jesus is not needy like you and I can sometimes be. He's not going to do miracles to try and win over those he's offended. No, no. Amazed at their faithlessness... They don't receive the blessing of the kingdom, but his mission will continue. He advances the mission, the second half of verse 6. He goes on, he teaches in other villages. Verse 7, he ups the mission heat by sending out six pairs. In other words, they're going to achieve more, they're going to cover more ground going out with his power over evil. And they go, verse 8 and 9, with this sense of urgency. There is no packed luggage. Okay, this is too important. Go quickly, verse 10 and 11. Like Jesus, go and don't pander to the hard-hearted, but bless those who listen. 
And then in verse 12, 13, they go out and they preach with power. They bring the kingdom in power. They call for repentance. They drive back evil. And then we skip over. We'll come back to a little bit. We skip over. Verse 30, they come back. They, they report in. And what's really interesting is you kind of go, oh, I wonder how it went. Mark doesn't tell us. He, that, that's not important. Verse 31, what he shows us is a spiritual hunger has been created in such a way that it exhausts the apostles. And Jesus gets that. Uh, Jesus knows their weakness just like he knows our weakness. And so verse 31, he says, um, let's rest. And they head to a solitary place. But verse 33, the spiritually hungry race ahead. So they get there and rather than get rest, Jesus is overwhelmed with compassion. And that compassion drives the next two incidents, controls the rest of this chapter. Jesus' compassion is for people who don't have a real encounter with him, who haven't grasped all he is. And Jesus' heart for them is the heart he still has for us. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. So what's he do? He begins teaching. His compassion climaxes, his teaching climaxes with those words on the water, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. See, in compassion, Jesus knows we need more than just to experience the impact of his work, see the fruit of his mission. In compassion, what Jesus wants is for you to know and experience him, to truly grasp him, to, to, to experience God come to us. And so he teaches, he reveals his divinity by feeding the multitude and then walking the water. So uh, Jesus is God, he provides for his people. Verse 35 Jesus acknowledges the crowds in a remote place, just like that first reading we had, Exodus 16, Israel between slavery and the promised land. And what happened there? God fed them. It wasn't Moses who fed them, God himself fed them. And there's this beautiful expression in Exodus 16 where he's going to make the, the, the manna from heaven rain down. You know, as we hear the rain pouring out there, you kind of think abundance. It's just not going to stop. It just comes down, the provision. And the disciples' solution in that moment, seeing these desperate people, is, hey, they've got to fend for themselves. We can't look after them. It's just impossible. Half a year's labour to pay for them. We're not carrying that kind of cash. We don't have those resources. We've only got five fish, two loaves. And Jesus goes, yeah, I know that. You can't do it. It is beyond you. Verse 39, though, Jesus, the good shepherd, takes charge. He seats them on green grass. Um, that's historical detail. Um, it's not just kind of a little bit of flourish. Um, it's historical detail with spiritual significance. The background is Psalm 23. You might know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie in green pastures. And there is Jesus looking to heaven. That is, I'm in partnership with my father and he breaks the bread and he distributes it. And if you know how Psalm 23 finishes, it finishes with a banquet and overflowing cups. And there, 6 verse 42, there are the crowds eating to satisfaction. And they are full and there is abundance. There is leftovers, 12 basketfuls of leftovers. God has rained down the, the, the manna from heaven on them, 12, the, the number of Israel and the apostles. That is leftovers for all God's people in abundance. That is, in compassion, Jesus teaches. Jesus wants his people to know him. Ezekiel 34 promised a time when God himself would care for his shepherdless sheep. That's what he's doing. Jesus, Jesus wants us to know God has come to us. 
And with that, he is God ruling chaotic creation. So verse 45 opens with immediately. That immediately ties the two scenes together. Mark wants to see that they actually go hand in hand because they're really revealing the one truth about Jesus' identity. So verse 46, he goes, he communes with his father in prayer and then he comes out to his disciples on the lake. And in verse 48, they are straining in the wind. It is a reminder for you and me, in case you forgot, in case you weren't here a few weeks ago, that biblically thinking the sea is the place of chaos and disordered creation. But Jesus strolls out. Too easy. And in verse 48, he's about to pass them by. Mark uses language carefully. Pass them by. It is an allusion to God revealing his glory to Moses. In Exodus 33, the Lord um, took Moses, hid him in the cleft of a rock, kept him safe and his glory passed by because all of God's glory, his unfiltered glory would have been too much. It would have destroyed Moses. He couldn't handle it. And so Jesus here passes by and he speaks the Lord's name, I am. And here is God with them. He reassures them, don't fear creation's chaos. The God of creation is with you. you, you know, God has come to you. Uh, in 1961, the Soviets put the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, uh, and the Soviet leader at the time, we'll get a picture of him, I think. There you go. Oh, no. There we go. Uh, on the left there, anyone know his name? Thank you, Rod. Big points, more prizes going this way. Nikita Khrushchev, that's right. He declared that they had sent a man into space and they found that there was no God up there. Now, C.S. Lewis, the uh, chap on the right there, uh, he wrote an article in response called The Seeing Eye. And Lewis wrote that if there is a God who created us, we wouldn't discover him by just going up high in the air. God is not going to relate to humanity the way a, a man on the second floor of an apartment would relate to the person on the first floor. No, no, no. He says um, God would relate to us like Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare is both the creator of Hamlet and all of Hamlet's world. And so Hamlet can only know about Shakespeare if, if the playwright writes himself into the play, if, if he wrote himself into Hamlet's world. And, and in the same way, the only way to you, for you and me to know God is to, you know, and to have a real encounter with him, to have a real relationship with him, is if God himself revealed himself in this world, if he entered in, if he, if he became part of the world we live in. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing. As he feeds the multitude, as he walks the water, he is writing himself into the story. Jesus says, I am has come to you. You know, Jesus is God himself. And the great news for you and me, what does this mean? It means we can really know God. And your friends and your neighbours who have never encountered God can really encounter him. They just need to be introduced to Jesus. And what that means for us as we, we kind of uh, pursue that vision of seeing more disciples as we join Jesus and the, and the apostles' mission is we can be really bold. Because if Jesus can provide in the wilderness, if he can calm the, the damage of creation, what fear do you have in joining his work? God himself has come to us. He is with us. Jesus is God himself. And secondly, with that, Jesus is unwelcome. God doesn't come the way we want. Mark 6 climaxes with Christ's divinity, but all the way through there's been resistance. Um, he comes to us and humanity doesn't want him. So for some, he's just too ordinary. 6 verse 2, he amazes many in his hometown with wisdom and power, but the tide turns. God has come and he's ordinary. 
They know his background in verse 3. He's no well-trained scholar. He's a tradie. He's not from a respectable family. He's Mary's son. I'm doing the air quotes on purpose there. Mary's son. Okay, in their culture, um, even if your father had died, it would be normal to describe him as Joseph's son. But in his hometown, they're highlighting that he's Mary's son. The moral cloud that's around at his birth is still there. And so verse 3 They take offence at him. Literally, they are scandalised. They don't deny the facts of his wisdom and power. That's there to be seen. But the packaging's so unimpressive. It's got no appeal. And still today, don't we know that? We know that familiarity breeds contempt. You know, our friends and our neighbours, you know, they might say to you, I'm doing some spiritual exploration. I'm just checking out a few, you know, kind of religious things. I'm exploring my spiritual side. I might, you know, go to India and find myself or something like that. Um, But they skip Jesus Because, well, I had SRE in primary school, so I kind of know him. He's all too familiar, all too ordinary. God does not come the way our neighbours want any more than he came the way Jesus' neighbours wanted. And for others, of course, he's too demanding. So sandwiched in between the 12 going out and the 12 reporting back is the account of John the Baptist's murder. It is a flashback. Mark puts it there rather than in chronological order to help explain how Jesus' mission is going to be received. That is, God comes to Herod's court and he demands too much. He demands change. 6 verse 14, Herod wonders if Jesus is the resurrected John. He is haunted by what he did to John. Herod murdered John for demanding too much in God's name. Uh, Herod had taken his brother's wife and John called him to repent. And in verse 20, 6 verse 20, um, Herod couldn't deny John was from God. He knew he was a righteous man and uh, he feared John and he took an interest in what he taught but he wasn't willing to change. That is, Herod, he was kind of content to dabble in religion, have a little bit of religion on the side, you know, containable, nice little bit of religion that doesn't affect him. Uh, What he really feared was having to be different. What he feared was losing his reputation. Um, So he makes a stupid, foolish promise to his stepdaughter in verse 23 and she demands John's head on a platter. Verse 26, he doesn't want to, he's distressed. You know, he fears John, he's protected him, but he fears all the more losing his reputation. You know, the dinner guests, what will people think? Still today... God's call to change, God's call, admit your error, lose face, is too much for some. Uh, A young woman interviewed about Australia's shift from religion, said she left church because its sexual ethics didn't fit hers. It demanded too much. She didn't want a Jesus who would change her. God comes and for some he's too ordinary, for others um, he's too demanding. And there's another, perhaps even scarier group, who just want to box him, limit him. The disciples have bought in on Jesus' mission, but they still try and contain him. They hear his words in verse 50. You know, I am, but they don't get it. Verse 52, they have missed the connection between Jesus' words, I am, and the feeding. It is not a lack of evidence. We're told in verse 52, it's that they're hard-hearted. It is a spiritual issue of theirs, not an intellectual one. For all they've seen Jesus do, they cannot accept that he is God. They want a Jesus they can contain. They want a great prophet and a great teacher. They don't want the living God in their presence. 
And still today you'll find that. People will warmly receive the teaching of Jesus. They'll say things like, oh, Jesus, his ethics are really good. You know, he said love other people. I love his Sermon on the Mount. They haven't read the Sermon on the Mount because if they've read the Sermon on the Mount, they wouldn't love the Sermon on the Mount. Um, They don't want the exclusive power of God to take centre stage. They want to contain Jesus. Here's the thing, God comes to us and we don't want him. Our misplaced fears don't want him. Uh, A chap called Dallas Willard, uh, he puts it this way, we'll get a quote of his in a moment. Actually, I'll give a bit of context. Uh, He goes, to set it up, he goes, the ultimately lost person is the person who cannot want God. Who cannot want God to be God. Multitudes of such people pass by every day and pass into eternity. Get that? You're going to university and school and work with these people who are passing you by every day and passing into eternity. And he says this, he goes, the reason they don't find God is that they don't want to find him. Or at least they don't want him to be God. Wanting God to be God is very different to wanting God to help me. See the difference? Now, God to be God who will, who will set the limits, who, who will come on his terms rather than your own terms, rather than be you know, in my making, the real I am, we don't want. A chap called Aldous Huxley wrote The Brave New World. He was a writer, a philosopher. We'll get a picture of him in a moment. Hip and cool young fella. Um, he conceded very openly why, why he was so anti-Christian. So he had a typically religious background, couldn't wait to go off to university because he went to university, he could do whatever he wanted. And his disarmingly honest uh, account of why he rejected Christianity, he said this, For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. He's open, he's honest, and at least that's helpful. It's good when people are honest. Um, His unbelief had nothing to do with the facts, It was all because he didn't want God to be God. He wanted to do things his way. And Jesus, admitting that the the reality of Jesus would mean he had to change. Now, wanting God to be God is very different to wanting God to help me. And this is what we're going to say. God comes to us and we, the world, don't want him. And he knew he'd be rejected. Ultimately, that rejection took him to the cross. You know, the whole scene of John's beheading is a foreshadowing of Christ's future. And the beauty of that, it shows us the kind of king we have. So, you know, you've got Herod the king, who is self-serving and self-interested. Herod the king is willing to take a good man's life to look after himself, as opposed to Jesus the king. Jesus who comes in poverty, the carpenter whose closest friends and allies have to beg, basically, for support on the mission. Jesus who comes and will will give his own life to promote the good of his enemies. What a very different king we have. And all the way through, that contrast is made, isn't it? The shadow of the cross is all over John's death. You know, like John, Jesus is going to be plotted against and his enemies will twist the justice system. And like John, Jesus is going to be imprisoned and executed by people who know he's innocent. And like John, Jesus is going to have his body taken down and cared for by his followers. But unlike John who Herod thought was raised, Jesus really will rise to life. And it is the risen Jesus who still comes to us today that we might encounter. He comes to us, but he's not necessarily what we want. But he is who you need. And he is the king who will give his life to promote the good of his enemies. Everyone lives for something or someone. All your friends and your neighbours do the same. And Jesus is the only God who, if you serve, will fully satisfy you. And if you fail, we'll fully forgive you. And by nature, we don't 
We don't want him to be God, but, but when he does a beautiful thing, when he softens our hearts by the Spirit, we delight that we don't get the God we would have invented, but we get the God who really is. Now, he is the unwanted God, but the God we need. And when we see, Dallas Willard goes on, he goes, when we see Jesus as he is, we must turn away or else shamelessly adore him. And if, we, if you grasp who Jesus is, two ways it will shape you. The first is this, expect rejection. People are going to go to great lengths to not receive Jesus. Um, it will appear on the screen, I think. Bingo. See, some will see Jesus as he is and they must turn away. The, you know, the hometown, their lack of faith, um, he literally marvels at it in verse 6. There is only one time in the Gospels where Jesus said to marvel at anything. That's this. It's not that he's caught off guard by the fact that he was rejected. He knew he was rejected. He came anticipating it. He's amazed at the depth. And it stands as a warning to you and, you and I that no, no amount of resistance is beyond possibility as we seek to make disciples in our city, as we seek to bring Wollongong to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Twelve's mission framing John's murder is preparation. Yeah, and as we seek to make disciples, there will be rejection. But God prepares us for the rejection, not so that we'll give up on the mission. The warning makes us resilient. The warning makes you thoughtful. Um, Jesus' amazement at the lack of faith doesn't mean he goes, oh, well, I guess I'll stop, give up now. No, no, no. He still heals some in verse 5. Verse 7, he ramps up the mission, doesn't tone it down. The chapter finishes and the crowds are racing to him. You know, the, re- the mission goes on, it'll succeed. Rejection won't be universal, but we need to be resilient and thoughtful. Uh, Glenn Scrivener, he gives a good example. Uh, in his recent book, uh, The Air We Breathe, you can see him and his book up there, um, a worthy read. Um, in his intro, he addresses the different types of people who he hopes read the book. Uh, and one category he hopes read it are the duns, those who are done with Jesus, who are familiar with Christianity and they reject it. And in his appeal to them, he writes, our problem with Christianity, and we all have problems with it, especially Christians, turn out to be Christian problems. So then, if you feel yourself to be done with Christianity, my desire is to take your critiques more seriously, not less. I want you to embrace those difficulties, press into them, since in truly owning those standards, you may well find yourself coming closer to the essence of Christian faith. See what he's doing? He anticipates the rejection, and rather than kind of go, oh, that's enough, he's more thoughtful. You know, he's going to take more seriously their objections. He doesn't abandon the mission. He is resilient and thoughtful. See, serving the unwanted God, expect rejection. But Jesus says, take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. And with that, secondly, lastly, enjoy satisfaction. Jesus gives abundantly to those who receive him. See, some see Jesus as he is and shamelessly adore him. And I hope that's you. Crowds flock to him and he sees and he has compassion. He says, let me reveal myself to you in full. And verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus may not be the God you want, the God you would have invented, but he's the only God who will meet the needs of your heart and indeed every human heart. And depending on him, our friends and neighbours will find the satisfaction they search for. And the more you depend on him, the more you'll discover that true satisfaction. Uh, the author um, of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, was also a serious academic. He was an Oxford Don. Um, 
And knowing that serious academia, academia kind of despised fairy tales and fantasy that he wrote, he wrote an essay defending its popularity, um, simply called On Fairy Stories. And Tolkien explained that the ongoing appeal of fairy tales in the face of reality and realistic fiction. And he said there are four longings in every human heart that just keep going. They'll appear on the screen. Um, to escape time and death. We long for that. We, we long to speak to and commune with non-human beings. Our hearts long to experience love that heals and can't be lost. And we long for the complete triumph of good over evil. And because those longings are in every human heart, we're constantly drawn back to fairy stories and fantasy. Because real life doesn't deliver. But God comes to us and does. Christ meets every one of those desires. You know, in Christ we escape death. In Christ we commune with the divine. In, in him we've got this love that heals and can't be lost. And in him good will defeat evil once for all. See, in Jesus there is a satisfaction that seems like it's just fiction, fairy tales. And yet, it's real. There are all sorts of misplaced fears that keep people from Jesus. You know, he's too ordinary, he's too demanding, he's, he's beyond containing, he's not, the, he's not the God I would have invented. And yet to those fears, Jesus says, take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not stayed far off, but you have come to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who in compassion reveals who he really is, that we might know him, that we might encounter him, that we might be satisfied by him and we pray, Father, that we would find satisfaction in him, uh, not in him being who we invent but who he really is. And, Father, we pray that in your kindness and mercy you'd reveal Christ to so many in our city, our friends, our family, our neighbours, the people who pass us by who don't yet know you, who haven't encountered you. Have mercy on them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.